when you're walking down the street or sitting around a table, even whether you're surrounded by a thousand people or two other people, your whole being is imprisoned in this like one cubic foot bone dungeon, okay? Your skull that you cannot break out of from birth to the death your entire life. All you can do is sort of like tap on the wall to the person imprisoned in the next skull. Right. Right. And so I consider the books to be sort of tap, 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 trying to let somebody in the next skull imprisoned in your skull understand something like what's going on in my skull. If you were in a dungeon and there was someone in the next dungeon and you were able to communicate by tapping, if you could make some connection and, and get some feeling that there's someone else you know, on the planet, that, there's some, that you're less alone, Right. That would be a very worthwhile endeavor. So that's what I consider it is just trying to communicate something about experience that we can share. Welcome to the Lifelines podcast brought to you by the Brooklyn Writers Project. I'm Marina Aris. And I'm Diane Fenner. And we're your hosts. This is the podcast for book creators, book lovers, and literary ambassadors. Join us each week as we explore the writing life, the art, and the business of creating great books. Today, we're interviewing James Coonan, the author of Diary of a Company Man, Losing a Job, Finding a Life, a memoir in which he shares his journey from corporate PR man to teacher of immigrants. Jim is also a prize-winning journalist, best known for his 1968 memoir, The Strawberry Statement, Notes of a College Revolution, based on his account of the anti-war strikes at Columbia. MGM's film version of the book won the jury prize at the 1970 Cannes Film Festival. Jim has been a contributing writer for Time Magazine, a featured writer and senior editor for News at People Magazine, and director of corporate communications at Time Warner Inc. in New York City. In 2008, after being laid off, he embarked on a search for meaningful work that led to his current position teaching English as a second language at LaGuardia Community College in Queens, New York. As a freelance writer, he has written for The Atlantic, Esquire, GQ, Harper's, Sports Illustrated, The New York Times Magazine, and other leading publications. Jim, James, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's great to see you. It's been a while. I know I have read all of your books. I just, before the show, reviewed Diary of a Company Man, and I was laughing out loud. It reminded me of how much I love your writing. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Maybe we could start by talking about the craft of memoir. I'm, you've written, I think, five books altogether? Right, and five. Not all of them memoir, but... Three of them, I think, would qualify as memoir because they're in diary form. Two of them even have the word diary in the title, right? Diary of a Company Man. And my first book, The Strawberry Statement, the subtitle was uh, Diary of a College Revolutionary, I believe. Was the it publisher right? made oh, up I, the I, subtitle. I think they made up. Uh, they was also it? added notes. Yeah, notes. You, they you, added notes. <laughs> okay, notes. notes I was I was doing some homework. Okay, so <laughs> I kind you. of I had some notes. I knew you'd have, you'd have an advantage over me, as if you both have looked at these books more recently than I have. <laughs> okay. yeah, Fair I'm, enough. And I have a very bad memory. That's one reason I write things down as a, a diary to begin with, so oh. that I know how I got here today. So I so you have more diaries <laughs> up coming up ahead, maybe if if, if need be. Yes. Okay. Seriously, do you think you might write another diary? I would hope not to write another diary. It's time to write something that doesn't have the first person pronoun on every page. Sure. Well, here's a question on craft. Having written more than one memoir, can you talk about the process? Was it different every time? or? Well, yeah, I would say it was different. The first, let's, 
let's find out by going through them one at a time. The strawberry statement, I was 19 years old. I was participating in the uprising at Columbia University against the war in Vietnam, not writing about it or intending to write about it. After the first night of arrests that broke up the occupation of the buildings, you know, I was spent a few hours in jail. I came out and there was a phone call from a friend of mine who was an editor at the Harvard Crimson. And he asked me if I would write an article about what had gone on at Columbia thus far for the Crimson. So I said, OK. So I then reconstructed what had happened in diary form. So I hadn't really been keeping a diary. And then they published it in the Crimson, and my friend sent me many copies, several copies of the paper, and said that people are very excited about this, Jim. You should submit this to a magazine or something. And I said, yeah, no, whatever. And I put it in a drawer and forgot about it. And then about a week later, my roommate came running up to me and said, Kenan, you're famous. And I said, what are you talking about? He said, well, the Harvard Crimson sold your article to this new thing called New York Magazine, and it's going to be oh, really? tomorrow. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, that's fantastic. Right, that turned out to be true, and I, and I went down to see the editor of New York Magazine, who's, uh, whose name was Clay Felker, who became a very famous and important editor of magazines in New York, and he asked me if I would continue keeping a diary in order to write a second installment. I said, oh, I don't know, Mr. Felker. You know, if I, I, I up till now I've just been really doing what I'm doing. And if you're asking me to write about what I'm doing as I'm doing it, then that's going to sort of change everything. It'll kind of put me on the outside of the events, you know, rather right. he's, he put his hands behind his head and leaned back in his chair, put his feet on the desk and said, Jim, if you're going to be a writer, you're going to be outside of everything for the rest of your life. So just have to decide about that now. Wow. And I said, okay, all right. <laughs> okay, and, I'm uh, sold. <laughs> uh, count me in. You know, in retrospect, I think it's really not that if you become a writer, you will be on the outside of everything. It's more like if you're on the outside of everything, you'll become a writer. I know. Um, I already, that. Yeah. already had that perspective, including being outside of myself, kind of a dual consciousness. Sure. I don't know if everybody has that. I'm only inside my own. Head. I think it's yeah. typical of writers, right? It, it's, I do it's, too. It's that process of reliving yeah. on the page. And yeah, maybe right? typical of human beings. I, sure, I don't sure. really yeah, know. I have a friend who's a writer who said that she always felt like an anthropologist in her life. Oh, yeah. <laughs> wow. it's, it's a lot of writers, I think, will will have that feeling, that sort of imposter syndrome, that feeling of, you know, just kind of masquerading as a human being, but what they're really doing is watching and not being part of the group. Right. Yeah, that's yeah. absolutely right. And uh, comedians even more so, probably. Yeah, you're, you're an observer, including of yourself. Some reviewer compared me to a fly on the wall, which is, you know, not the most flattering thing. But if you think of yourself as the shit-eating yeah, insect, <laughs> oh, no. but I think he just no, meant the, uh, sure. the, the, the expression of the, right. the creature that sees everything from a distance, sees it, takes it all in. Did, yeah. Was it hard? Did it turn out to be hard for you to... Oh, to go back and... Well, there did become an issue, you know. There were some yeah. people, you know, in the the movement who, you know, felt that I was exploiting the movement or this and that and the other thing. There were some people, you know, who genuinely felt that. There were some people probably who felt jealous that they weren't the ones who had, you know, accidentally written this article that got a lot of attention. How, how old were you when the article was published? 19. Yeah, you were very young. Yeah. I mean, that's and, quite a bit of, you know, success right. at such a young age. It's I know that whole thing must have been a really heady experience. Did you feel sometimes like it was kind of unreal that you went from being a college student to a person whose book was selling 
all over the place and a movie being, you know. Yeah, how long, you, the movie, how long the, did the movie, uh, when, when did the option for the movie happen? Well, so what happened was that, so I took Felker's advice and I, and I, going back to your question about the methodology of the diary, at that point I was contemporaneously really keeping a diary, but unlike probably a lot of people, I was keeping that diary with a view to the idea that it would be published, you know, so uh, what you put in and what you're interested in has a lot to do with the anticipated audience rather than talking to yourself, for example. But I did that. And then the second installment came out in New York Magazine. And then the phone rang and someone's on the other end saying, we want you to make this into a book. And then that got started. And then the phone rang and somebody said, we want to make this a movie. And that was before there was even a book. That was a movie based on the magazine articles, which is one reason that I didn't, <clears throat> didn't get hardly any money for the movie. But that's another, another issue. Yeah, so I was 19 years old. All these things were happening. I sort of felt that, well, first of all, it was the 60s. So, you know, you expected crazy things to happen. There's no reason why wouldn't that happen? You know, I mean, uh, it's true that my phone rang and somebody asked me to, you know, be uh, sell my non-existent book to movies. And it's also true that one night my friends and I were walking on the street in Soho and somebody approached us and said, could you, would you just grab this this crowbar and, and come in through this open door and walk out on the stage and beat this lamb's carcass with the crowbar. We're having a, a, a conceptual art happening and I need somebody to do this. You know, so we all walked in. And, you know, so why That's not? Why wouldn't you have a movie made? I mean, anything, anything could happen. Anything could anytime. happen. Yeah. My friend used to say to me, we'd, we'd be sitting around and he'd say, are you, are you ready for Broadway? Meaning just the street. <laughs> right, right. You ready right. for Broadway because Broadway's ready for you. Right. So you're like almost the accidental memoirist? No, I mean, exactly. it sounds almost like you just kind of happened on to this opportunity. That's and correct. That's correct. That's really interesting. Mm -hmm. But you know what? Now that I think about it, in terms of the form and memoir, uh, first of all, is this really a memoir if you're doing it in real time as it goes along? I don't know because memoir sounds to me like it has the memory and probably not thinking about short-term mm -hmm. memory from this afternoon to tonight when I'm writing it down. But it's true that those first New York Magazine articles I put in diary form because just for in a hurry, let's get this down. But then I said, okay, now I have to write a book. I've never written a book before. How do you do this? And I thought, okay, I had outlines and it would be like the issues we talked about, you know, uh, strife on the campus, racial tension, the Vietnam War, Martin Luther King gets killed, and I struggle with that. And then, and meanwhile, the deadline for the book is getting closer and closer because they only gave me like two and a half months to write the book, which is, I would recommend to everybody. I wish I had that kind of deadline for my other books. It's just do it, get it done, and now you're out of here. Whatever happens. Right, right. But I didn't know any better. For, I thought at that time that a deadline really was a deadline. Right. You really had to meet that deadline. I had, you I were knew, so young and impressionable. I was, yeah, it was just, exactly. So everything was to, possible. Yeah, you have to do it now. So, so I, I was struggling with these organizational principles that I discussed with you, and then I couldn't do it. So I finally said, oh, what, what the hell? I'll just put it as a diary. You know, that's a quick quick and dirty way to organize things. So that's why I did it that way. And it worked out for me. And so quick and dirty was that approach. What right. about the other memoirs then? It was, was, was well, there a similar deadline or the, pressure? Uh, let's, 
Well, let's skip to, okay, I'll take them in order. The next one that was a memoir, I wrote a book called Standard Operating Procedure. I had gone to Vietnam for True Magazine, True the Man's Magazine during the war, and I wrote about, with anti-war soldiers, interviewed them about their experiences and the things that, that, that they had done that they felt were terrible and unjustified, and we put that into a book. But now we skip to the next diary. It was, uh, How Can You Defend Those People? The Making of a Criminal Lawyer. Okay, and that was a, a, a book about my going to law school and becoming a public defender in Washington, D.C. Now, again, this was something I had a contract for to write. You know, I pitched the idea, okay, uh, you know me at Random House, the Strawberry Statement was a big success for us. I'm going to go to law school now. This was after five years of being a journalist that right. wanted to come in from the cold and have a job. So I'm going to law school. How about if I write a book about you know, like the first year of law school? And they said, fine. And I signed a contract. And the first year came and went. I thought, this is what, you know, there's nothing to write about here, which is ironic because there was a book called 1L about first year at Harvard Law School, which subsequently came out. That was a huge hit. I don't know why. I haven't read it. And uh, <laughs> then the second year, then the third year, then I finished law school. I still hadn't written a book. And then, then they were starting to say, come on, Jim, it's time to get this book going. And I became a public defender in Washington. And so I had been keeping a diary again but for the publication of a book okay and this one unlike the strawberry statement was not reconstructed in retrospect none of that this was as i went along i've got to get a book together somehow i'm going to write down things that are interesting all right so right away that's kind of a false accounting of a life because the only thing i'm writing down is the greatest hits right this is the greatest hits album but Eventually, I pulled together the greatest hits of going to law school and learning to be a lawyer and being a lawyer. And it sorts of, it starts with going to law school. It ends with winning the acquittal of someone who was accused of murder. I love and, that book. Yeah, let's just I say someone against whom there was a great deal of persuasive <laughs> evidence. Yeah, because I mean, I I was in law school and I did some public defender work, and every that was so true. Every bit of that was so true. But most people don't advertise. so diary okay well i I guess we'll move on from there but what i what i conclude from that at least in your experience diary seemed to be the framework with from which you decided to publish or create these separate books because yeah i think i think that became a habit that the i hesitate to say for most people because i don't know most people and i haven't surveyed people either so i don't even have a representative sample but I would intuit that for many people, keeping a diary is a way of reflecting on their life and giving shape to it. Whereas for me, living a life was a way of uh, creating a book. <laughs> right. It's kind of right. like doing it backwards. Yes. You know? I find that so interesting. Yeah. And uh, so sometimes I would uh, you know, try to live in a way that's going to make a, some kind of a book. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and that but was not, totally true with Diary of a Company Man. Oh, the opposite of what I was just going to say. I was going to say with Diary of a Company Man, I mean, because without too many spoilers, without giving away too much, I'm aware that, you know, you start out not knowing you're going to have this termination from your job. And so I couldn't have imagined that you were writing it with the idea that it would appear as a book. Yeah, let me think about that. I told you you had an advantage that I yeah. had. <laughs> the, uh, I've read your books more recently than you've written them. It did seem to me like that would have been a diary 
I mean, you were writing the diary of a company man at the time that you were at the company as something to be published. Right? Uh, I, that was a column that you were writing, right? Oh, yeah, that's right. Okay. Oh, Jim, come on. No, no. <laughs> Whoa, no, yeah. Diane, Diane's right. Okay. I'm, like the, I'm like the first two. Where You're going to make everything seem way too easy for people. You just, yeah, you just they, knock these books off without ever struggling. Well, Diary of a Company Man, what happened was I'd been working at actually People Magazine for six or seven years as a writer and editor, writing about politics and crime, sometimes baseball. Those are my three specialties. I got into a uh, personality conflict with my boss and I was clearly losing my job. And my wife suggested that I write an email to the CEO of the entire Time Warner Corporation, which owns not only Time Inc., which owns People Magazine, but also Warner Music, Warner Brothers Pictures, HBO, CNN, Turner Broadcasting, this gigantic empire with 130,000 employees around the world. And my wife says, write an email to the, to the CEO and see if you can get a job working on the vision and values campaign that was then underway. The company, he, the CEO felt the company should have some values to live for. So I thought that was the most ridiculous idea in the world. <laughs> but so I, so I sent off the uh, But the you did email. it? He, he got right back to me and said, you yeah, come what? on over and talk to the chief of HR. And, wow. Uh, and so so, so I, yeah, I was, so I ended up cast against type. Like when in your introduction, you read, you, you read that I was director of corporate communications. I was really a director, you know, and the, con the job title director is the lowest thing you can be. You know, you're director and then you're vice president, executive vice president, then you have all kinds of chief bottle washers. <laughs> you just take away the article, a uh, director, and you just say director of corporate communications. And it sounds like that was really something. But I was... Nonetheless, I was in the headquarters of a global corporation, and that was an interesting experience for me. And I and it was something I would never do. You know, I'm a student radical. I'm not going to go work for the corporation. It just goes to show how much control you have over your life. Exactly. You know? But there I am. And, and the interesting thing was that there was nobody there who was a true believer saying, you know, we're going to make this the best darn global corporation ever existed. <laughs> They're all just there, you know, saying, I, this is just my day job. I just, yeah, and, I show up right? at, you know, yeah. 8.30 or 9. Yeah. I go home later right. in the day. Yeah, yeah, sure. I didn't have a night job, but it was still just my day job. But I did that, and then 2008 came along, and there was, a, you know, I lost my job along with tens of thousands of other people. And then I thought, what am I going to do? So I decided, well, I'll... It wasn't my first choice, but somewhere along the line, I came to well, I'll write a book about you know how I worked at, at, at People Magazine and Time Warner, and I lost my job, and then X fill in the blank. Actually, you know that wasn't even true. That's not true. <laughs> I was going to write a book about people who people who it's a sort of similar track to the, the Strawberry Statement is that it starts with concepts. I'm going to write a book like a, not about me. I mean, I'm tired of writing about me. I'm going to write a book about people who lose their jobs and find something better to do. Right. And I read the reviews and you touched a nerve. I mean, I also lost my my position at a finance firm that year. So uh -huh. I was one of the thousands you just you know spoke about. But according to the reviews that I saw, yes, you really hit a nerve. And people, I think the universal theme was that, is that sometimes you're let go and you have to start again. And what do you do? Exactly. And sometimes you're older. I believe you were 60? I was 59, right. Right. Yeah. So that also impacts how people feel about such a, a massive 
layoff. I mean, so many people were affected. Well, it's it's too bad I didn't find my way to you. I think I think you would have been a great interview. What I did do I started down that road, and I through various means I would find people who had lost their jobs and found something new to do. And include, I found, I, I read about uh, the closing of a Chrysler assembly plant in Newark, Delaware, and I went and talked to a worker from there and what he what he's doing. And I talked to all different kinds of people and I wrote up a treatment, you know, a chapter, the whole the proposal. And I went around with this to publishers and couldn't get arrested. Nobody wanted that from me in any case. And then uh, I thought, well, you know, Studs Terkel has a, uh, had a famous book called Working, which was oral history. And so I thought, okay, plan B, instead of my, you know, writing this thing with interviews and so on, it'll just be oral history transcripts of interviews with people, and it'll be called Not Working. Okay. <laughs> okay. And I tried that. I like that idea. Yeah, don't you? It's yes, a great idea, yes, right? Yes, absolutely. Couldn't get arrested without either. And they, they, they said, no, write about your experience right about in other words that's what i'm good at i guess let's you know just face it well when you're that's the only thing i can do when you're approaching the the traditional houses i mean they want something much more traditional right like now with self-publishing people can do whatever they want right so long as the writing is solid you could have done whatever you wanted right and and it would be fine yeah. So that's how things change, at least on the on the publishing front. Right. Well, but, that's that's a it's good. It's also scary because if you're given a, the structure of a sonnet, you know, then you can or a haiku, then you're challenged and you're steered in a direction, and you've got guardrails, and then you can do the. And sometimes you'll do really well because of those strictures. Yes. And like the, uh, well, like the meanest thing my mother could ever say to me when I was a little kid was just. Do whatever you want. I don't care. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, all yeah. There's another side to that. That that we'll save it for another podcast. But but the idea that I will leave you with in regards to what you're saying is that it's true for sure. But the market won't buy anything that doesn't, you know, work well. Mm -hmm. You can Mm -hmm. do whatever you want, but if you don't do a good job, no one's going to buy it. Right. So I, I still think that there is some measure of regulation whether and it's and at the end of the day now what it is it's the buyer it's the reader it's mm-hmm. the person who pays for a book mm-hmm. so i'll leave it at that because i'd rather you know talk about you and and your memoirs and, and this process well one of the things that i think worked well for you particularly to be the writer of something that included yourself is that you were the college revolutionary and then you were in the exact opposite this corporate culture and those opposites played off so beautifully that was sort of a theme running through it and you have this way of i almost feel like reading stuff but just generally you have this way of pointing out how ridiculous an environment is without calling it ridiculous simply by describing it and that was hilarious in diary of a company man talking about what it's like to punch a clock figuratively at Mm -hmm a nine to five job for a huge corporation in the United States, you know, in the 21st century through the eyes of someone who was a radical, who was so far outside that culture. I thought it worked brilliantly. Thank you. Well, that's something to, so I, when I was given this task, you know, by the publisher, write about your own experience. I I said to a, a friend of mine from Time Warner, actually from People Magazine, you know, I don't know anything about what happened at Time Warner. I was never in the inner council. I can't write about how they decided to buy AOL or, or sever from AOL. I, no one told me anything. I don't know anything. I went to this 
dreary job every day. And my friend who said, simply said to me, you'll make it interesting. It'll be interesting because you'll make it interesting. And lo and behold, in Diane's, I think, opinion, and certainly in my opinion, the most interesting part of the diary of a company man is the part at Time Warner, the dreary, uninteresting <laughs> corporate job. The uh, parts before at People Magazine, where I'm meeting all kinds of fascinating people, or afterwards when I'm working with immigrants and loving it, and they're so inspiring, we're saying, oh, that's okay. You know, but the, the, the really interesting part, in my opinion, was the Time Warner corporate part. Which brings us to the question of some guidance for memoirists, okay? I think, and this may be really obvious, but I think the goal for me, in, even when writing a, a diary, is to, is to have a person who reads it have some understanding of what it would have been like to be in that room or on that sidewalk or in that forest. Just be there, okay? So it's not, it might seem to be that you're writing about, I had this happen and that's how it changed my life. And then because of that, I do this. It's like, who gives a shit what you do, you know, or what happened to you? I don't care. You know, this is so true. It's what would happen to me if I were there and I experienced this. See, the thing is that when you're walking down the street or sitting around a table, even whether you're surrounded by a thousand people or two other people, your whole being is imprisoned in this like one cubic foot bone dungeon, okay? Your skull that you cannot break out of from birth to the death your entire life. All you can do is sort of like tap on the wall to the person imprisoned in the next skull. Right. Right. And so I consider the books to be sort of tap, 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 trying to let somebody in the next skull imprisoned in your skull understand something like what's going on in my skull. If you were in a dungeon and there was someone in the next dungeon and you were able to communicate by tapping, if you could make some connection and, and get some feeling that there's someone else you know, on the planet, that, there's some, that you're less alone, right. that would mm -hmm. be a very worthwhile endeavor. So that's what I consider it is just trying to communicate something about experience that we can share. Now, th did this occur to you while you were writing or is this a, a reflective realization that you had after having written so many memoirs? No, I think that the voice that I have and the perspective that I have when I write a memoir is consciously striving for a goal. And the goal is to tell you, Marina, what you missed it. You weren't in this meeting at uh, Time Warner talking about how we're going to respond to the 9-11 attacks. But now you, you won't miss it. You'll be there now because you'll see something about how you might have felt and what you might have thought had you had that experience. I like that approach a lot. I think that I've read it in writing books, but you said it so much better. <laughs> I like the way you, you, you describe that. Well, we get to see it through your eyes. And it's absurd. That's the feeling I got when I was in Time Warner mm -hmm. through your eyes. Mm -hmm. I just felt like this is opposite land. This is absurd. <laughs> You know, I mean, you just sort of made the American corporate structure look as ridiculous as it is. And then I thought, you know, I forget during the day when I think about things that actually there's some pretty crazy sides to this. Like when you were talking about the philosophy or the value systems, <laughs> you 
completely turned it on its head. And it, you never said these people are stretching the point and making the opposite of what they really feel, mm-hmm. the appearance, but it came so clear to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, like a corporate creed that says we value our employees, and <laughs> you think like, yeah, like as opposed to what we treat them like old shoes to be thrown away when they're no longer comfortable. Which in fact is yeah, which is a, the truth. Which is the truth. Yeah, a which bit, nobody wants. Like to say. what happened exactly to you? Right. Exactly. I mean, which is probably why I sort of imagined that you had written this with retrospect. That I sort of imagined that they treated you as badly as they did, and like. If we were going through the eyes of me, mm-hmm. I would just sort of wanted to lash out and say, oh, is that what you think you're going to get away with? I'm telling. Oh, <laughs> I'm telling. <laughs> I'm telling. <laughs> That's funny. I like that. I'm telling. I'm telling. Right. Although if you read a memoir writing book, they'll tell you, you're not supposed to tell. You're not supposed you're, you're just supposed to share and not use memoir as a tool for, for getting justice or being vindictive or whatever. It's almost oh. as if you have to have a very peace full outlook on whatever the circumstance was, especially if it was difficult for you. Mm-hmm. So to have, so, so that in essence you can write without anger or a negative emotion and therefore just be more subjective, even though it happened to you and affected you in such a negative way. I hadn't, I'm not, I hadn't thought of that, but I can understand why. I think there's something called the trust, the concept of the trustworthy narrator, narrator, Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So if the, the reader of your book gets the feeling that the narrator has an axe to grind or is angry or is trying to get even, then it's not the same thing as the omniscient narrator. God telling the story mm-hmm. is sort of a, a, an ideal. And But when a person is telling her own story, you still want to feel that the person's being fair and telling you the truth. You know, right. truth is, is a very valuable and hard to come by. Right. And it's somewhere in the middle. It's not always, it's not always, yeah, it's it's what you see, what the world sees. It's funny because you can't leave out your feelings, right? but you have to be, you know, have the reader understand that that, that these are uh, justifiable and genuine feelings. Did you ever get any feedback or, uh, because it's not flattering. Did did anybody from Time Warner, uh, in fact, some of the people you mentioned by name, did anybody ever say to you, you know, that was vicious or vengeful? I was definitely not vicious in there. I wouldn't say that. No, I, I'm like, thinking like, about the word bloat. Well, that was said to me when I when the 500 people in at headquarters were laid off. I pick up the paper the next day, and the and the CEO it says we quote we have eliminated the bloat at huh? corporate headquarters. And I think, oh great, I've worked at this company for 18 years. Yesterday I was your colleague, and today I'm a gastric distress. Oh, okay. and, but in uh, fact, and so that's when I said I wouldn't. I said that. Uh, what did I say? Oh, yeah. I said I wouldn't. I said. I gave my all to Time Warner for 18 years, and today I wouldn't piss on Time Warner if the building were on fire. And I said that that crackling that crackling sound you hear is my bridges burning. That is true. Those bridges were burned, and I wondered whether anybody reacted, especially because in context of bloat, I think you mentioned the salary of the. Oh, uh-huh. the CEO was making like at that time a mere seventeen and a half million dollars a year or something. I mean, to pay for all the people that he that, and, that great number of people, right? Yeah. And then at that salary level, was referring to large numbers of hardworking people as the bloat, right? Right. And I just thought maybe that guy didn't take that so well. Well, he could care less. Yeah, I think that's that's what it comes down to. He's right. too busy, you know, going to the bank. Right. But let's you know let's talk about challenges while writing the memoir was it challenging for you to 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 even write what you just shared with us was 
or was there a different challenge? What, what kinds of challenges did you face? Because I think all writers have a different well, approach to memoir. I remember one right off the top of my head, which is the feeling that I was betraying confidences, that I had been in rooms where people are talking and they're, and they're talking to me as a friend or a colleague, not as a, a reporter. Even though I might change names or whatever, they, they know. There's really no way to uh, soft pedal that. You basically are betraying people, so you just mm-hmm. have to. I mean, I mean, you're betraying their confidence. Even confidence, if they, not yeah. the people. I think the confidence for for sure. Yeah. Well, if you were saying something that was going to hurt them, you know, either hurt their feelings terribly or hurt their careers terribly, I don't think I would do that. But nonetheless, they, you're changing the rules of something, and so I was conscious of that, and I sometimes make choices about what well, no, that I shouldn't say, and this is okay. People who tell the stories of their uh, relationships and their marriages and so on, uh, I don't really know how they do that, but or how they negotiate that issue. But so there was a much bigger issue for some people if they're if they're talking about their romantic experiences or sexual experiences. I, I'm not sure how. I don't have really any advice for them. I don't know what you do, but people do that all the time. Right? They do. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's difficult. Yeah. When you look back on this, is there something that you wish you could have done differently or do you feel like you don't have any things that you would have done differently? On which? On Diary of a Company Man or all five books or? Yes, both. Oh. <laughs> uh, there was one. I, oh, I'm trying to think. I think that there was a title I liked better. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This book is called Diary of a Company Man, and the subtitle is Losing a Job, Finding a Life. And I wanted the subtitle to be, I wanted it to be Diary of a Company Man, What It's Like to Be Alive Now. I lost that battle with the publisher because they felt what it's like to be alive now doesn't really tell people what the book is about, whereas Losing a Job, Finding a Life does. And uh, so they, they probably, maybe they're right, but I mention it because why should you care what the subtitle of this book is? But I mentioned it in terms of we were discussing the goal and what you're trying to do. And the subtitle, What It's Like to Be Alive Now, is what I was really trying to do in that book and probably what I'm really trying to do in every book is just say, this is what it's like to be alive in January of 2018 in the United States. I would like people to know. I'd like people to know that after we're all dead. And I would also like people to know that right now it's like this maybe will help open your eyes and you'll say in some way for somebody this is what it's like to be alive that's a title of another book and then it needs a subtitle (laughs) hopefully one you won't disagree with yeah maybe i consult with you about that (laughs) but again i feel like there's two levels to it because in a way so so, i'm sorry to interrupt but you asked me if i regretted anything so i wish that i had stood up and said no it has to be this but I guess I would lose that anyway because they, they're the publisher. That's you right. Know, yeah. Not in self-publishing, I just yeah. have to say. Right. But so definitely another reason, another reason to do But that. Yeah. I, 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 know, I, I say that with, with a lot of love for the traditional publishing mm-hmm. houses. I have a lot of respect for, for mm-hmm. what came before. Mm-hmm. But we are at a different time and place. Yeah. And so there's room for this other alternative. And so it'll come up every so often. Mm-hmm. Um, but with deep respect for, for the tr- traditional publishing model. But in the end, you did find a life, a life that was much more satisfying to you than the corporate life had been. And so something about, you know, being alive and feeling more in tune with the job that you're doing all day came through for me. And I, so I just wondered if you felt like that was part of the reason it was better titled, what it's like to be alive now. Well, that's interesting. It has, in other words, it has a double meaning. Mm-hmm. And 
you're right. Thank you for having looked at the book more recently than I have. <laughs> at the end of the book, I'm teaching ESL and I go to a party at the end of the year for the class and people are dancing to salsa music. And I, and I think to myself, I say, oh, so this is what it's like to be alive. You know, that I've awakened from my slumber and I'm now, so I'm learning from my students. This is what it's like to be alive at last. You know, it's good to be alive before you're dead. Thank God. You know, I found it. So you're right, Diane. Thank you. (laughs) But I didn't know that prospectively. You know, when I said this is what it's like to be alive now, I just meant I'm going to try to really capture on the page something about this moment. But at the end, it was had that other meaning of, ah, I've, I've lost a job, but now I've found what it's like to be alive. Yeah. And I do teach ESL, and I do love it. Kind love of, it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Kind of an inspirational idea. Uh, so on anything else you want to cover on craft? Because what I, I mean, I just have another question. Oh, yeah. How about you? How yeah, about you? I was going to try to make him tell me, you know, what he regretted. Because as an author or talking to other authors, it seems to me there's always this feeling of, oh, no, I can't believe that happened. I want to fix it. And it's hard to let go of a book or, or look at it later and not feel like, oh, if I could have just done it differently. And I know that comes up a lot. And it would be interesting to me if you are able to just put a book out there, let it go, and then never say, oh, I wish I had done any bit of it differently. The only thing I have that's like that is regarding my first book, The Strawberry Statement, when I was only 19. I wrote things like, uh, my roommate shows up at the rally tonight. I have about 20 degrees of contempt for him because I've been at the fighting this all the way along and he's only joining at the end when it's the thing to do. I wrote that not grasping the fact that my roommate is a human being, that this is going to come out as a book, that people are going to read this book. Maybe he's going to read it, his friend, his mother, and it's going to say, I have 20 degrees of contempt for this guy. And I said a few things like that about people in the book. I was because, and I don't know if this could happen to someone who's not 19 and not writing a book for the first time. Yeah, I think so. Well, I think what happened to me is that I just was in this unit. I didn't know this at the time, but I'm reflecting. I would say that I was in this bubble, this universe of me and the page that had to be filled. And I was just functioning in that universe without thinking for a moment. You weren't censoring yourself. Yeah, I didn't realize that yeah right. that there that this is going leaving my desk and going out into the world and that it has effects and there right. are people. I didn't realize that. But it's so difficult for you one because you were young two because it was the first book mm-hmm. and three because we remember if you think about the stages of human development at that point in time in our lives where you know our perspective is quite self centered in some ways you right. know it's, well, it's just a natural thing. Thank you. I feel better. I, I think so. I really do. Think I'm so. still very self centered. <laughs> Well, go ahead. You can ask whatever questions about craft that you want. We're almost going to wrap up. So I just wanted you to touch on memoir a bit more. And let's just imagine for a moment that you were at a writing conference. You were in a room full of first time memoir writers. Mm -hmm. And what are two or three strategies, tips, ideas that you would pass along to them, either uh, about craft or editing or publishing, any of those that you think you'd like to share would be terrific. Well, I have two pieces of advice for people who who want to write. Number one is, this is what writing is about. There's three things. Number one is what goes in and what stays out. The most important part of a picture is the frame, is what's in, what's out. So that's what you're going to have to decide more than the crafting of each 
lyrical sentence is what's in and what's out. That's what it's about. It's probably useful to realize that that's a central task, a central task. But that may be, that may come to people naturally. I don't know, but that's what it's about. Number two, don't repeat words. You know, if you say I went up. I went out the door and then I went out the door and I went, you have to say, I went out the door and then you have to say, and then I left my house. You know, you can't, don't, don't repeat words. That's the other, that's rule number two. And rule number three is never write a sentence like breathes there a man who hasn't want to fuck a cow. (laughs) (laughs) I have to put this in the show notes, you know. Well, you have to elaborate on that. Is that really yes, need to elaborate? You, you might need to elaborate. <laughs> you don't want to. You don't want to assume in a lazy way that that everybody is like you, and that whatever you think is like going to be accepted as like, oh yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. Now, you better take a second look and think: Is it really true that everybody wants to fuck cows just because yes. I want to fuck? Yes, yes. So Got it. it can be incredibly, <laughs> incredibly humiliating, embarrassing, just catastrophic <laughs> to write something like that. And you know that's an extreme example, but I feel that people do that a lot: sure. is that they write things on the assumption that everybody agrees with them or everybody thinks this or everybody has felt this way, had the same experience. No, you are not the universal human. You've right. got to realize this is your thought and your experience and how does it relate to other people? Do they really care? Should they care? Or am I really off base and saying something <laughs> like, you know, everybody wants to have, everyone is into bestiality, right? Right? Aren't they? You mean you're not? <laughs> I'm not. I'm not sure how to answer that. Now that <laughs> Don't I have answer. to give it a little Let's thought. Maybe better give it some thought. Oh, okay. no. All right. Well, I wish we had a whole lot more time. We'll have to do this again sometime. Jim, thank you again for joining us today. Why don't you tell our listeners where they can find more about you, your books, yeah, anything? They can find me on, I believe it's jamescunin.com. That must be what it is. Mm-hmm. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. We'll add it to the show notes. We'll, yeah. we'll look it up. JamesCunin.com. You'll find out about me and my writing, and you can read. Uh, if for some reason you wanted to, you could hear interviews, see interviews, and so forth. Right. And uh, Cunin is spelled K like Karen, U like Umbrella, and like Nancy, E like Edward, and like Nancy. JamesCunin.com. Thank you. Thank you. That's all for today. Thank you for listening. If you liked today's episode, please leave us a review. It'll help us keep bringing you great content. For show notes, upcoming events, and to participate in the Brooklyn Writers Project community, head on over to our website at www.brooklynwritersproject.com. Questions or comments? Send them to contact at lifelinespodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. Lifelines, the books podcast has been brought to you by the Brooklyn Writers Project. Music for this podcast has been provided by Anthony Nuda of Noble Sense Productions.